Hey everybody, and welcome to Learning from Smart People. I am your host, Rob Oliver, and listen, I am very appreciative that you have joined me today. It's winter. It is, as as I'm recording this, we have about eight inches of snow here on the ground in Pittsburgh, and I feel like I'm living in a snow globe that somebody shakes up every other day or so because it just seems to be snowing and snowing and, yeah, uh, but... The good news is I'm inside and I'm warm and I'm spending time with you. You're spending time with me. And today we are both spending time with Joe Edelman. Joe is an award-winning Olympus visionary photographer and photo educator. He is the host of the popular Tog Chat photography podcast that is viewed and listened to in over 114 countries every week. And he joins us today. Joe, welcome to the show, man. Rob, thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to a fellow Pennsylvanian. Absolutely. So, it, Joe, we were, we were talking about this kind of back and forth in our email set of it. I love to celebrate the people that are smart people from around the world. And we've, we've mm-hmm. covered just about the entire world, uh, you know. But there's nothing like talking about smart people from right here at home. So... Good stuff. Indeed. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. You bet. So, Joe, tell me a little bit. You are a photographer, and tell me a little bit about like what is it that you take pictures of? What is? Do you have a, like a niche in photography, or what is your? Where do you find your home? I definitely do have a niche. Uh, my business card says that I shoot people with a camera, of course. Oh, but right. yes, I I photograph people, and that's pretty much what I've done my whole life. I started out in the newspaper business, which um, that was like right out of high school. I have run a successful portrait and wedding photography business. I have done corporate and commercial advertising work, product photography, got involved with fashion photography. The last five to six years, been doing mostly beauty, portraiture and fashion work and working as a photo educator. So I tell people, I still don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. But it will have a camera involved for sure. Yep. So, Joe, I think you and I might be of kindred spirit here because <laughs> we don't have a choice but to grow older. The growing up part is where we where we have a choice, and uh, we absolutely some of us choose not to. Uh, good. Yep. So I'm I'm with you. So you're doing work as a not just as a photographer, but also as a photo educator. Tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about the venues where you're doing that education, if you don't mind. Uh, all over the place. I mean, for the last year, the venue has been right where you see me right now sitting, you know, in a converted guest bedroom in my home where I've turned it into a television studio practically. But I had the good fortune because of being sponsored by companies like Olympus and some other manufacturers of being able to travel the country, uh, presenting at trade shows, which could be anything from doing a little demo in a booth as people walk by to presenting on a stage in front of a couple hundred people at a time. I do a lot of retail uh, demos and workshops where we'll go out to Olympus camera dealers and do an afternoon or a full day of workshops and presentations, not just about the cameras, but also teaching people how to take better pictures. My, my educational mission, if you will, is to help photographers develop a better understanding of the hows and whys behind creating consistently great photographs. So Everything I do, that's what I hold myself accountable to. I don't teach a lot about like which is the best camera to buy. Even though I'm a camera ambassador, I talk more about the photography piece than the camera 
case. It's interesting that you say that because I was, I'm thinking, you know, in this day and age, you've got all kinds of, you know, digital cameras and you've got, you know, film cameras and you've got just everything that's out there. And sure. it's so confusing, especially when you think about the number of megapixels and the whether it shoots, all of these things. And in your professional opinion, how important is the camera in the process of creating quality and good pictures? Uh, it is only important in the sense that you need one. That, that's it. Um, the reality of it is, Rob, is that you cannot purchase a bad camera today. Uh, and so keep in mind, I'm sponsored by a camera company and I'm making this broad statement. There, there are no bad cameras for sale on the market. It doesn't matter who's making them. And let's face it, between Apple and Google and Samsung, we've got incredible technology that are in our smartphones. The challenge is there's actually a lot of bad photographers. That's, that's the challenge because at the end of the day, the technology keeps getting better and better and better. And it's incredible. And one of the things I am very proud of Olympus for is that they truly are one of the companies, even though they've just gone through a sale and like many other companies are struggling a little bit, but they are definitely innovators when it comes to bringing new technology to market. But it's a matter of getting people to put in the time and the effort to really learn how to use the tech. That's where, where the challenge comes in. Okay. So my kids are, my kids are big into social media and in social media, you can see the difference between the people who are good at what they're doing and people who, you know, you've got some people and they're putting up snapshots and they, they look like it was like, I don't want to disparage teenage kids, but it, it looks like it was a teenage, it was shot by an amateur on mm -hmm. a, an amateur piece of equipment. And you have other people who are putting up high quality products and they are high quality pictures. And, you know, it's creating a following. Do you have any simple tips maybe that can help folks that are looking to, to put themselves out there, to put some images on the web that would help them to, to, to not look like it was shot with a, an iPhone <laughs> right. 4S or whatever? So, I mean, the real challenge is, again, is, you know, even, even with an iPhone 4S, the, the challenge is um, keep it simple. Uh, you asked for simple tips. The number one tip I would say is keep it simple. What I mean by that is simple backgrounds. Pay attention to the things that are in the shot that have nothing to do with what you're really trying to show. Uh, we've, all, we've all made the mistake, even if you're not a photographer, we've all made the mistake of taking a picture on a family vacation or something. And we get home and we look at the picture and we realize there's a telephone pole or a mailbox like sticking out of the back of the person's head. Well, without becoming a real nerd here, that's actually a cognitive psychology thing that's called inattentional blindness. So folks, you can Google it, inattentional blindness. And basically what it means is you were paying attention to your subject and you ignored the background, which is something that we very easily as humans do. So the biggest tip is understand that you should pay attention to everything that's in the shot. Easiest way to do that is try and find a clean background that doesn't have a lot of crazy stuff in it. And the next most important thing to look a lot better, even with an inexpensive camera, it's your lighting. Try to find nice light. So obviously a picture that's done kind of spur the moment without much effort or thought is more likely to not look that good or not look that professional. But 
putting in a little bit of effort to say, well, where can I get nicer light? And you don't, you don't have to necessarily be good at knowing where the good light is because even with a phone, if that's what you're working with, you can pick it up, you turn the selfie camera on and you can just kind of walk around the room and look at yourself. And obviously the YouTubers and the beauty people on Instagram, they figured out very quickly the best light is usually right inside the window. As long as you don't have direct sunlight coming through that window, you're going to have gorgeous, soft light. The window acts as what photographers refer to as a soft box, and it softens the light. Excellent. It, all right, Joe, I have to ask you a question. It's going to settle a debate between my wife and I. And, <laughs> okay. And I'm, I'm going to be wrong anyway, So, um, <laughs> but when you're taking pictures outside— and you're mm-hmm. using natural light. Yep. Should people be looking towards, facing towards the sun so that the light is on their face? Or should they be looking with the sun behind them because that way they're not squinting and looking, uh, making bad faces? Right. So um, I'm going to choose not to get thrown in the middle of this argument. <laughs> and I'm going to give you an answer that starts with the word. It depends. Of course. If you go back to the film days, when you open up a roll of film, inside the box on the Kodak film was a little diagram. And it would show you the appropriate exposure settings. And it always very clearly showed you the idea that on a sunny day, you would put the sun behind your shoulder with your subject looking towards the sun. And it would give you an exposure uh, at F-16. That was the setup. The challenge with that, of course, is depending on your subject, if they're looking into the sun, they're potentially going to be squinting. That is not flattering. That doesn't look good. If you have the sun behind your subject, then it's a matter of, well, how high in the sky is the sun? Because if the sun's getting low, if it's late in the day, you can wind up getting a lot of lens flare and that could be very creative or that could actually just kind of destroy the quality of your photo. For me, I try to avoid direct sunlight on a person's face. If I'm trying to do a photo that shows them looking relaxed and and looking happy, I will actually generally try to move my subject into the shade. I, I have a YouTube video that's all about shooting portraits in bright sunlight. And I show six different examples of how to do it. And kind of the, the joke, behind the video is all six examples. I have my subject in shade on a bright sunny day because the light, the light is just so much more flattering and softer and it's actually much easier to work with, but you can be resourceful. So if you're photographing a person on a bright sunny day, what I, if I had to do it in the sun, I would maybe try and get the person standing on a sidewalk. Even if I'm just shooting a portrait, I try and have them stand on a sidewalk. Most sidewalks are white. That white sidewalk reflects light back up and it fills in the light on their face. And it makes for a very flattering light, even though the light is high in the sky and above them. Or if I can have them standing next to a bright colored wall. Now, certainly if it's a pink wall, their face is going to be pink. But if it's a wall that's a gray color or a white color, I can use that wall as a a built-in reflector and I can kick light back into their face. Uh, Joe, this is demonstration of quality education at its finest, right? Because I asked you a question and I, inside, I don't know why I was expecting kind of like a, well, it's easy, just do it this way. And you gave kind of a whole range of options as to this. And 
a simple, like Rob, your way is probably the right way would have been okay <laughs> with me. But, um, right. I, so tell me a little bit then you're, you're doing a lot of education and that yes. education is in some ways it's built, it's building your reputation as an expert, but it's also right. building the camera brand experience for other people and kind of giving them some, you know, some information about what's out there. Yep. Can you talk to the entrepreneurs that are out there about how to become educators that raises their stock as an expert in the field and also raises the awareness of their brand? Wow. Do we have about six hours? Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's a great question and it's, it's something that's extremely topical in today's world in part because you can scroll through Facebook and you're going to see ad after ad after ad for, you know, be a coach for this and be a coach for that. And if you give me $3,000, I'll make you a coach and you can be rich. So everybody's a coach. Everybody's an expert because they paid some money to somebody. Um, I, I think number one, to really be an educator and build a brand based around that, you've got to be coming from a source of legitimate knowledge not recycling right. something that you read on the internet or saw on a YouTube video. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to be successful at what you're doing, you can have the greatest marketing in the world and you may make money quick. Marketing will allow you to do that, but it is not going to sustain the business that you're trying to build. Everything that you do, especially since we're talking kind of entrepreneurial and online and educating, it comes down to value. What is the value that you provide? You know, you can think you're the greatest person in the world or what you're doing. You could spend all kind of money to prepare yourself to do this. None of that matters if the people that you are presenting this information to don't actually see value. So for me, my mission statement that I told you, I latched onto that very early when I started teaching, because at the same time I started teaching, I started dabbling in YouTube just to see what's it all about. And I managed rather quickly to build a YouTube channel that I now have over 174,000 subscribers. And so for me, it was, I want to hold myself accountable to that mission. And part of what I did is I went around and I looked at the competition. What are the other people talking about? What are the other YouTubers doing? Also keeping in mind that I wasn't a 20 or 30 something. I was a guy in my mid fifties when I started on YouTube. So am I even still relevant? And I'm also not being modest, but being legitimate. I'm not the best photographer in the world. I'm a guy who's been lucky enough to spend my whole life making money and paying my bills with a camera. That's, that's really what I can brag about, which not a lot of people do that. So for me, I realize there's not a lot of information out there that really gets down to the, the how things work and the why you should make the choices that you do. Kind of the foundational things, because you, know, you mentioned the way that I gave you the answer. In photography, there's two sides to the learning. There's the physics. In physics, there is always a defi definitive answer. We can't argue about the physics at all. Right. So there is a right or wrong, there's a yes or no. But then we get to the creative side, the visual side. And there, that's a whole different ballgame because then we get into different tastes, we get into uh, different likes and dislikes, we get into just different methodologies and so there, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of what will people who view your work appreciate. So I think first and foremost, I see so many people, sincere people, people that really want to help people that are trying to get into this educator space. And, and unfortunately, what they're not doing is they're not teaching 
from what they know, what they have experienced. They're teaching from what they've read and what they've learned or what they've seen in a video. And when you do that, you're not making the connections. You're not able to make the connection to the person that you're talking to and put yourself in their shoes at their experience level to understand what are the trials and tribulations that they're about to experience. Mm. It's important to connect the education to that. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of information. Yeah, I really like what you're saying there. It's the difference between experience and reading. And sure. when you have the experience and you're able to, to communicate, because you know you've been there and you've had mm -hmm. the experience, you've gone through what they've gone through. And um, as opposed to just being able to, to spout numbers or to spout you know, whatever it is that the, the book said, I love that. Um, yep. And I, I mean, it's very important. It's very important. I, you know, not to be cheesy, but Steve Jobs in his iconic commencement speech at Stanford talked about the concept of creativity and connecting the dots. And I think that connecting the dots lesson applies to so many levels of life, not just creativity. It, it, the way that we really develop understanding and the way we make use of the things that we experience, that we see, that we learn. It's by being able to connect the dots to figure out how to make the best use of that information. Yeah, and, and when you bring that up, it's interesting to, to me. I grew up as a guy, like I was a tech guy. And when I was 16 years old, I built my first computer. Like that was that was cool. And, and it was important to me to know about the speed and the, you know, the storage and all of those things that that mm -hmm. was, that's important to me. And my kids now, they are all Mac people and they have no idea about speed. They have no idea really about story. Like it's, and yep. so I think that speaks a little bit to what you were saying with sure. the physics side and the creativity side that mm -hmm. uh, in some ways when you're, when you're looking and this actually goes full circle, when you're looking at photography as a creative expression, the tool that you use, the camera that you use isn't as important as the ability to, to, you know, visually express the beauty of your subjects. I, I love Absolutely. what you're, yeah, that's awesome. Sure. I mean, there, there are times when you're going to want a specialized tool, like a sports photographer is going to need a very powerful lens and they're going to need a camera that can take pictures very rapid fire. So there are certainly niches where you've got very specialized tools, but for the most part, the most important tool, it's the way you see the world. Yeah, that's cool, man. So tell me, you've got a lot of different areas in which you're doing education. It, my understanding is you're, you're teaching at a, a local school or a local, local college. Currently school. I'm not, but I have. Okay. Yeah. So okay. all the cognitive psychology stuff that I talk about routinely, full disclosure, my wife is a cognitive psychologist. Fortunately, she's not a clinical psychologist. I'm sure I'd be in a straitjacket by now, but uh, so she, she is a college professor and she's known internationally for the research that she does on cognitive psychology. So she's been a lot of the source of the way that I've connected those dots. But uh, yes, uh, through my connections with her and also another school, I um, have a series of photography classes that I do at a community college. And then I also do a creativity class, which is a class that mirrors a class that she teaches. So in the psych department, she teaches a class all about the psych psychology behind creativity and kind of the science behind it. My class is taught as an art class, 
and it's really more about practical applications of creativity. So we're not we're not making any art. Um, I always joke, really, it's a great opportunity for 15 weeks to mess with the minds of 20 year olds, because uh, really what I'm trying to do is actually I'm trying to prove to them that they're much more creative than they're aware. So. I base it around photography since that is my forte and that's my area of expertise. And we do lots of photography, but they are required to do it with their phones. We don't use professional cameras. I don't use any of my professional gear. And it's really all based around proving to them that they're actually all capable of being very creative. So the exercises are designed to make them find ways to connect the dots and make associations. We do a lot of what's called divergent thinking, which is taking a lot of random pieces then putting them together and create associations among them cool all right so i'm hearing i'm i'm putting together a couple pieces here and mm -hmm. tell me if this makes sense it, okay. you are you're finding different venues in which you're able to connect with different audiences and so sure. you're at the college level you're taking 20 year olds and opening their minds to their own creativity and mm -hmm. then you're also you're going to camera stores and dealing with, you know, the general public. You're going to, um, you know, conferences and you're dealing with professionals. And what you're able to do is you're you're finding the venues where the where the people are, right? So you're basically you're finding, you know, who who drinks at what at which watering hole, and yep. then let me go there and and meet those individuals. Is that? Uh, oh, that's, I mean, that's absolutely it. I mean, throughout my career, which this isn't, a, it sounds like a complaint. It's not a complaint, but every portion of my career, I had a client or clients that I worked for. So I shot what they needed, what they wanted. And, and those were my deliverables. Part of what moved me into the education phase was reaching a point where I was getting a little tired of having to deal directly with clients. And, and obviously I've made enough changes within the photography world. When I get tired, I move on. So I had been asked to do uh, a couple speaking engagements and really did not think that I had anything to share truly, you know, doing the modest thing, but did the engagements, got a great response and really enjoyed it. So that's when I started to explore it a little bit more. And when I made the transition into essentially being a, a full-time educator, um, educator slash content producer, but it was um, really like any other business. If you, if you only have one revenue stream as, as an entrepreneur, and especially as a solo entrepreneur, if you've only got one revenue stream, that's rather risky. Uh, this pandemic is a great example. I went into the first week of March last year with a full travel schedule lined up for the year. I was ecstatic because I had an amazing calendar lined up. Within three weeks, that calendar was cleared, nothing. Right. So, you know, I immediately at that point started researching webinar platforms, Zoom, all the different ways that I could present online because I'm a bit of a marketing nerd and I've attended a lot of marketing webinars and they're painful. They're horribly painful people staring down at their laptop and then you're sitting there while it's like oh yeah okay so i want to share my this slide deck with you and this uh oh wait that's the wrong button hold on and like, is that it can you see it no no that's not it and you know it's like oh my god so my goal was how can i create an online presentation a virtual presentation 
that is going to be as close to in-person as possible. Because for me, a big part of what I do, it is personality. It's the passion that I, that I bring to the topic. And so I put together this, you know, little home studio that was designed for that purpose. I have a teleprompter. My presentations are scripted, which allow me to be very animated, stay very focused. I, even if I'm doing the presentation through Zoom for like a camera club, I use software on my end that allows me to change screens and do picture in picture with the presentations. So there's never any of that downtime. And I went to great lengths to make the presence, the presentations as interactive as possible. So throughout the presentation, and these, I'm not selling people anything in these presentations, but throughout the presentation, I'm asking people questions that they've either got to unmute their microphones and answer, or they've got to type in the chat. So it keeps people engaged. It keeps people involved. I even go so far when I do camera club talks, I literally bully people. It's like, Hey, turn your cameras on. I'm not going to sit here and stare at this gray wall while I present to you. You turn your camera on. I promise you, I'll bust my butt for the next 90 minutes and I'll teach you something. Sure. Uh, I, I, you know, I literally make people engage and, and get involved. And the greatest feedback has been, you know, it is, it's like, this was awesome. I, I was glued to the screen and there was no time where I sat there, you know, watching you fumble with technology or any of those things. So it, it having multiple you know, multiple income streams is important to any business. What's great about where I'm at now is it's really actually just one income stream, education, but there are many, many sources. So that's where the stream splits up. I mean, I, I do make a little bit of money from YouTube. Um, I'm sure like you do with TalkChat, I do get sponsorships and things like that. So that's kind of how I split that stream, but it's all focused on the idea of, really helping people get better at photography. Photographers have a bad habit. And when I say photographers, I mean amateurs and professionals. We get a little too caught up in the gear mm. and we spend way too much money. We call it in the photography world, we call it gas, gear acquisition syndrome. <laughs> and so uh, my focus is on the, look, we understand everybody's going to deal with that. That's a piece of it, but it's not about the gear. It's about the doing so I'm kind of that guy that's like the cheerleader. And so much of what I do, especially on YouTube, it's DIY. It, it's, you know, instead of spending $50, I can do it for a dollar sure. from the dollar store, you know, and, and that type of thing, which also promotes the idea of creativity. Think outside the box. Sometimes, you know, actually many times, the best way to solve a problem is not necessarily to go spend money. It's to figure out another way to do it. Because while you can spend money and solve the problem, you have to ask yourself, how many times am I going to use that piece of gear that just solved that problem? Right. Right. Is it, is it a smart investment or can I DIY this time solve the problem? And I'm only out a couple of bucks because I may never need to do it again. Sure. What well, it, go, it actually goes back to what you're saying about your college class and you're mm-hmm. teaching people that number one, you already have the, you already have the tool it's in your hand and you use it every day and you don't realize the power of your cell phone. Um, sure. And you also already have the creativity. It's something that you take for granted and you don't even realize that you have. Joe, this has been fantastic. Tell me, where can people find out more about you online? Easiest spot is my website, Rob, which is www.joeedelman.com. From there, you'll be able to find links to my YouTube channel, to the podcast, uh, to all my social profiles, um, all of the stuff that I do on social media. I try to make it as education as possible. So even like on my Instagram, if you scroll through my Instagram, make sure you swipe on every one of the pictures because once you swipe, 
you'll see lighting diagrams, you'll see behind the scenes pictures, behind the scenes video clips. So even on Instagram, I'm trying to turn everything into a lesson and share information. That's awesome. I will put, I'll put that link in there. I'll put some links to your um, social media stuff so that people can find out a little bit more about you and connect with you. I, I really appreciate it. So Joe, it's time for three questions to establish your humanity. Are you ready for this, okay. my friend? I'm ready. Go for it. Uh, what did you want to be when you were a kid? From the age of 11, a photographer. Uh, prior to that, I think like any kid, I, I wanted to be like my dad. My dad was um, essentially, they didn't call it that, but he was a mechanical engineer. That's, that's really essentially what he did. He was one of those guys who could fix anything. I thought that was amazing. That's beautiful. Uh, did you ever have a nickname? Dude, Wait. just D- dude. My, <laughs> that's, that's what, my, that's what my, my son calls me and I call him. I, it's fantastic. What, okay, so you're going like Big Lebowski. You are the dude, right? Uh, <laughs> fantastic. You have done a bunch of travel. What yeah. is your favorite restaurant that you have uh, that you've been to in? It can either be there in the Allentown area or wherever you have been in all of your travels. Wow. Um, okay, so I'm going to cheat the answer just a smidge. Um, it's mostly Las Vegas, also Los Angeles. I'm a huge Gordon Ramsay fan. Okay. So I, I, you know, in Vegas, he's got like five restaurants now. So anytime I get to Vegas, which I make it a point to get to Vegas whenever I can, it's just a fun, I don't gamble, but it's just a fun place. Sure. But I, I love, I love all of Gordon Ramsay's stuff. And I've been to uh, two of his restaurants in LA. Um, any, any particular dish that stands out for you? Uh, the beef Wellington, of course. So beef Wellington and risotto, that's it for me. So. I, I, you know, you've got a happy place, so that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Joe Edelman, thank you so much for being on Learning from Smart People. This has been very educational. I appreciate you sharing. Uh, for all my listeners, I will say thank you for being with us today. I hope that you have learned as much as I have. And I will remind you, as always, that when you stop learning, you stop living. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.